If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black Bible in the pew in front of you. Last week's sermon was a heavy sermon. Last week we made eye contact with our depravity and we tried to look the reality of spiritual death in the face without flinching, without looking away. We let Paul teach us what it means to be spiritually dead. And then in verse 4, we looked at what were perhaps the two most important words in all of the Bible, but God. We saw that God, by the immeasurable power of His grace, has sovereignly raised us from the grave and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And we marveled at the power of God towards us who believe. And then I argue that this was the apex of the argument that Paul has been making since chapter 1, verse 3, that uh, salvation is from first to last a work of God. And I showed us that what Paul is doing is he's really kind of peeling back the curtain and he's showing us how the gears of salvation work in the machine. But then I ended the sermon by telling you that this week, in today's sermon, we were going to see not only what God does, but why God does. Why does God do what he does the way that he does it? Why has God designed salvation from first to last, to be a work that he sovereignly carries out without any help whatsoever from us. Well, today we are going to hear Paul's explanation. Today's sermon is going to be in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 2, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 so that we have the context. Follow along with me as I read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, and it is totally sufficient for our lives. Amen? Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning to the glory of your name and for the good of your people. Amen. 
My thesis statement for this morning's sermon is as follows. Salvation is from first to last a work of God, and you've already heard that several times over the last few weeks, in order that God might do two things, eliminate human boasting and increase his glory and grace. Salvation is from first to last a work of God in order that God might eliminate human boasting and increase his glory and grace. Now, I get that directly from the text. If you've got a pen or a pencil or a highlighter or a gel with sparkles in it, you can take it and mark up your Bibles if you're that kind of person. And there are two little words in this text today that you're going to see repeated twice or repeated once, you'll see it twice. And there are the words or the phrase, so that, so that. You'll notice these words in two places. The first place is at the very beginning of verse 7. And then you'll notice also in the beginning, excuse me, in the middle of verse 9, right? Towards the middle of the verse, it says, so that. So if you're like me, you can take your Bible and you can circle those and you can draw a line connecting to them because they're very important. You go back through and read this book again, you can see it in the future. So my points for this morning's sermon are going to be based off of these two so that clauses. So here are this morning's points. Number one, God's boasting. Number two, our boasting. Number one, God's boasting. Number two, our boasting. Let's get into it. Point number one, God's boasting. Uh, my wife uh, basically built my kids a treehouse last weekend, okay? And she did it while I was gone, while I was away from the house. She was supposed to have some help, but the guy who was there helping had to go. And so while I was away, I got a picture via text message showing basically the first half of a clubhouse or a treehouse that my wife built with no other help other than my seven-year-old daughter. Uh, I'm glad I wasn't there for it because I would have been very nervous and not able to help at all, right? But I got a picture of it, and she was bragging. She was saying, look what I did, right? It was amazing. And then later that night, as I was scrolling through Facebook, I saw that she posted the same thing with the same comment on Facebook. Hey, everybody, look what I did. And then the next day, I saw in her text messages that she had sent messages to people besides me, other people with pictures of the treehouse saying, hey, look what I did. She was very proud, as she should have been, Right? She kind of became like a crossfitter or a vegan. You know, she was at the grocery store and they said, paper or plastic? And she said, well, I built a treehouse, you know. <laughs> she was so proud of her work, she wanted to show it off to everyone, to anyone who would listen. Now, whenever we show off something like this, something that we've built, the work of our hands, we're not showing off the thing so much as we're asking people to look at us and to admire something about ourselves. Right? Some quality worthy of admiration. So Amber, in showing off her treehouse, was less asking people to look at this wooden structure that she built, and she was more asking them to see and admire her ingenuity, her creativity, her persistence, her initiative. And we did. And my first point this morning, what I want you to see is that God is a show-off. God is a show-off. And in the best way possible. Verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship. 
Okay, so God makes us, he works on us, he creates us, and then he holds us up for all the universe to see. And he's pointing at us like a proud craftsman. But he's not so much asking everyone to look at us and to be amazed by us as much as he's asking everyone to look at us and be amazed about what we can see of God in us because of our salvation. Jonathan Edwards talks about this, uh, and he uses the illustration of a diamond. He says this, what is it that we cherish about diamonds? Well, we cherish the way they sparkle and reflect the light. That is, we value them because they magnify and reveal something else. Our admiration for the things themselves is a bit ironic. The beauty we see in a gemstone is really just the beauty of the light of the sun. I remember he was in a time before electricity, so not the light of the Zales counter, right? The light of the sun that would light up the diamond. He goes on to say this. When you rush to see a shiny new diamond on someone's finger, you are in fact knowingly or unknowingly rushing to admire how beautiful the light can be when seen through a vessel made specifically to reflect it so well. And we are that vessel. And God has made us to reflect his glory so well. In verse 7, Paul begins to explain why God has designed salvation the way that he has. And he says this, so that in the coming ages, he, being God, might show, right, so there's that show off, he wants to show something, show the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, we've already seen that God in the gospel, by the power of his spirit through the atoning work of his son, takes people who were dead in sin and raises them to life. He takes people who were as low as they can possibly be in the grave and he raises them up to the highest possible place they can be, at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. And the reason why God does this is so that he can show us something. What is it that God wants to show off? Well, the text says, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. What Paul is saying here is that the grace of God is an expression of the kindness of God. God is being kind to us, those people who were once his enemies. You'll notice here that Paul uses the same over-the-top superlative language when referring to God's grace that he used when he was referring to God's power. In chapter 119, Paul goes, the, the powerfulness of his power, right? That's, he says the immeasurable greatness of his power. He's trying to communicate something big about the power of God. Well, God, uh, Paul does the same thing here in chapter 2, verse 7. Instead of saying the immeasurable greatness of his power, he says the immeasurable riches of his grace. And when Paul says immeasurable, it can't be measured, that's what he means. I'm reading a novel right now about a stolen piece of art. A young man steals a painting and he keeps it for several years and he begins to grow anxious and paranoid about it. So he goes online and he starts uh, searching, trying to find information about the painting that he has. And as he's reading uh, this newspaper article, it says that this painting is priceless. Wow. And then he keeps reading the article and, it, and he sees that they have value this painting 
at somewhere around $2 million. And then so in his mind, he thinks this. Why do they call it priceless if they can put a price on it? Right? It's one of those words that we use that doesn't really make much sense. But that's not at all what this word means when Paul uses it. When he says that God's grace is immeasurable, he means it. It can't be measured. You're never going to get down to the bottom of the barrel of God's grace. God's grace is infinite. And the reason why it's infinite is because it comes from an infinite God. So there's an infinite supply of it. In chapter 1, verse 8, we saw that Paul was talking about how God lavishes the riches of his grace on believers, right? That word lavishes, it means he, he, he heaps it on us in luxurious and opulent qualities. Imagine a Victorian era queen or a Russian oligarch who just has a bathtub filled up with caviar, you know, that sort of thing. That's the way that God dishes out his grace to us. And the reason why God can be so lavish with his distribution of grace is because it's never going to come to an end. He's never going to run out of it. He can heap it up in these quantities because he's not ever afraid of losing any of it. It's like the way I approach Diet Mountain Dew at Buffalo Wild Wings. I know they're free refills all day. It's always going to be on tap. That's how God's grace is. It's on tap, and the tap's never going to run dry, unlike the syrup dispenser in the back. And that tap is never going to be closed again, not for those who are in Christ. Now, you'll notice that in verse 7, Paul says that God wants to show off his grace in the coming ages. Uh, you can read that incorrectly to think that that means that, like, in the future, God is going to show his grace off, not right now. But if you understand Paul to be saying something more like throughout the ages, I think it means more sense, it makes more sense. What he's saying is that Paul is showing off, uh, God is showing off his grace now, and he's going to show it off tomorrow and he's going to show it off the next day and in the next decade and in the next eon he's going to be showing it off forever and ever and ever throughout all of the ages that's why one version translates this verse like so so that god can point to us in all future ages as an example of the incredible wealth of his grace Now, what I'm telling you here is just a rehashing of what I already told you in different words in chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 12, and chapter 1, verse 14. Namely, that God is doing everything the way that he is doing it so that we will look at his grace and be blown away by what we see when we look at it and then glorify his name, right? It says it three times in the first chapter alone. So I think the collective picture that you should be seeing here is that God is a show-off. He's in the business of broadcasting his attributes to the whole of creation so that we might revel in the awesomeness that is God and glorify his name. Elsewhere in scripture, we see that God does the same thing. Paul in Romans 9 talks about God and the reason why he raised up Pharaoh. Why did God raise up Pharaoh to be the most powerful man in the world? Well, so that he could crush him and show everyone in the world that he was not that powerful after all, but in fact, God was powerful. He had to raise a man up to such power so he could show off his power over his power. God's power over his power. You're tracking. God also raised up Moses so that he could show off the attribute of his mercy. And Paul contrasts Pharaoh and Moses. 
both of them equally deserving of God's wrath. But God raises up one in order to show off the attribute of his power. God raises up another in order to show off the attribute of his mercy. And when it comes to the salvation of your soul, brother and sister Christian, God has so designed the gospel in such a way as to maximize his glory and minimize your contribution down to the point of absolute zero so that we would glory in his grace all the more. I don't know how this understanding of the gospel strikes you as you're sitting there in the pew listening to me. Um, I remember how it struck me when I first heard it. Slightly offended, a little bit amazed. Not, not so sure if I was there. I think that if, if this doesn't sound like the best news in the world to you, there may be a couple of reasons, but I think one of the main reasons why you may not love this the way that you ought to in your heart is, is because you may want to somehow, some way contribute to your salvation. And I think you want to contribute to your salvation because you, like me, like all other humans since the fall, you want somehow to be a boaster. You want to boast, you want to brag, you want some glory for yourself. Which leads me to point number two, our boasting. I love double stuff Oreos. I love them so much. I've been known, amen, I've been known to get a packet off the shelf and have most of it eaten before I get to the checkout line, okay? So I love double stuff Oreos. Uh, I like to think of verses 7 through 10 in chapter 2 of Ephesians uh, as the double-stuffed Oreo verses, okay? Now, stay with me, okay? The thought that Paul communicates in the middle of these verses, beginning in verse 8, going down through the first half of verse 9, if you want to highlight that, I think it's like the creamy center of today's text. So verse 7 and verse 10 are like the chocolatey outside, and verse 8 through the first half of verse 9 is like the creamy center. At the end of verse 9, Paul gives his second reason why God does what he does the way that he does it, so that he can eliminate boasting. But before we get there, in verse 8, Paul gives us the theology of why God does what he does the way that he does it. He gives us the theology of it. So, beginning in verse 8, he says, For... By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Now here we see Paul doing what I often say as he's just falling down all over himself to communicate this idea of what grace is, right? In order to help us do that, Paul explains grace one way and then he explains it another way. I don't know if you've ever taken like a writing class where they try to help you be a better writer, but one of the things that they say there is if you have an idea that you really want to get across to your readers, what you should do is communicate it one way and then say something like, in other words, or to say it another way, and then you repeat that statement, just kind of, you know, mixing up your phraseology or maybe even using an illustration or something like that. And that's what Paul is doing here. Now, in order to help you see this, I want to draw your eyes to two sets of contrasting words and phrases. 
This is another highlighter or pen or pencil moment for those of you who are inclined to do that. The first contrast I want you to see is between two words, faith and works. Faith and works in that text. And the second is between the phrases gift of God and your own doing. Those are the two contrasts that Paul sets up in these verses between faith and works and the gift of God and your own doing. Now the point is simple enough. I almost don't have to teach on it, but I will. You've got to give the people what they want. It's so clear here that faith is being contrasted with works and that what God does is being contrasted with what we do, right? And, and that should shape the way that we think about grace so powerfully that whenever we think of the word faith, we should think, oh, that's the opposite of what work is. But this may not make any sense to you unless you understand what faith is. Uh, at, uh, together for the gospel a couple of years ago, Philip Jensen, uh, an Anglican author and pastor and theologian from Australia, recommended that we stop translating the word faith as faith in English. I don't agree with his argument, but his argument goes like this. People don't know what faith means anymore. It's a word that we use all the time that we don't really understand. I've been watching a lot of uh, mountain climbing videos lately. There's this guy, Alex Honnold. He climbed 3,000 feet up the face of El Capitan, this mountain in uh, Yellowstone National Park. I mean, it's amazing. He did it without a rope. And I think that, that most of us think that faith is whatever it took for Alex to get to the top of that mountain, right? He had to approach that mountain with a mixture of confidence and maybe even a little bit of superstition. But he was trusting in his ability to get up there even though he had no real reason to trust in it. Even though he had no real assurance that he wouldn't fall off the face of that mountain and plunge to his death. I think a better picture of faith is probably something more like a mountain climber who is strapped into a harness with a rope attached to a carabiner. That mountain climber trusts that if he falls off the mountain, that the harness is going to do its job that the rope is going to support his weight, that the carabiner will function as advertised. That's what faith is. Faith is not a superstitious belief that if I j walk out into the middle of the road, I won't be hit by a car, even though it's uh, heavy traffic hours. Faith is trusting that something is going to do what it's advertised to do, or trusting that someone is going to do what they have promised to do. Faith is not when you get in the car without a seatbelt on and go blazing down the highway and say, God, I have faith that I won't die if I get into a car accident. Faith is when you put your seatbelt on and you trust that the seatbelt is going to do what it's supposed to do and keep you from flying through the window or cracking your head on the steering wheel. That's what faith is. And faith in God is the same thing. Faith is trusting that God is going to do what he has promised to do. And in the gospel, God has promised us that he has provided a way for us to be saved from our sins. That he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to shed blood to pay the ransom price that we should have paid. And that if we would just turn from our sins and trust in Christ and his free offer of grace, then we will be saved and received into God's family. We will get to go be with him and enjoy him forever and ever. This is what we are called to trust in as Christians. This is faith. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that this is how you become a Christian. 
not through anything that you do, but only in believing in what God has already said about what he has done. Now, returning to the seatbelt illustration. It should be obvious to you that if you get into a terrible car accident, your trust in the seatbelt is not actually what saves you. The seatbelt saves you. If a mountain climber falls off the face of the cliff attached to a harness and a rope, it's not his trust in the harness that saves him. It is the harness and the rope and the carabiner and his partner down below that actually saves him. The point that I'm trying to make here is that even our trusting is not actually what saves us. It's what God uses to save us. To be saved by faith then is just another way of saying that we are saved by what God has done and not by what we can do. There's a reason why Paul is so emphatic on this point. And the reason is this. Because we want to find some way to take credit for our salvation. We want to find some way to insert some just tiny amount of work that we do in this equation because we want to boast. We want to brag. We want to be show-offs. And that's why Paul says in verse 9, that salvation is by faith and not by works. It's, it's the result of what God does and not the result of what we can do so that no one may boast. Mankind is in a glory tug of war with God. Except that it's not much of a war at all. Because God will absolutely not allow anyone or anything to participate in his glory. When the sun comes out, the stars have to disappear. God will crush the boasting of all men, and it won't even be hard for him to do it. We know that every knee will bow in humility one day, and we know that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and they will do so without even a hint of braggadocio. And the good news of the gospel is that for the children of God, for those who are saved by this gospel, he doesn't have to crush us to eliminate that boasting. He crushed the son to eliminate our boasting. And he, in his infinite wisdom, you can't even comprehend a system like this. This is how I know that this book comes from God and not man because nobody could think of this. Nobody could invent a system like this, but God did. He designed salvation in such a way as to eliminate our boasting. It's like a bloodless coup. God has overthrown the government of our pride without having to do any violence against us because he took the violence against his son. Now, you might think that those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, would have sort of an, an inherent understanding of this system that has worked to save their souls. But that's very often not the case. There are entire Christian schools of thought that want to somehow, some way, by any means necessary, work in, works into the salvation process. The worst example of this is the Roman Catholic Church that believes in a salvation of grace 
plus works. This is a false gospel. It cannot save. The, the, the best of this, which is still very dangerous, uh, it, it expresses itself by trying to tweak the definition of grace. Right? You just tweak the definition ever so slightly so that you can fit works in there. They say, yes, you are dead in sin, but God has given you a gift, and you must open that gift if you want to receive it. Friends, I've never seen a dead man open a present. It doesn't work like that. Somebody from this viewpoint might cry out, you must believe, and is believing not a work? No. Friends, no, believing is not a work. It's something that God does through you. Well, we've already seen that man's heart is dead in sin. A dead heart can't conjure up faith from within itself. It doesn't work like that. A a rotten tree only produces rotten fruit. Romans 8, 7 says it this way. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. A dead heart cannot seek after God. A dead heart cannot receive God. It only suppresses the truth of God and rejects God as an enemy. But you don't even have to leave these verses. As I was preparing my sermon, I had 10 scripture proofs. I probably could have had 11, depending on how I wanted to play my hand. I had all these scripture proofs of how faith is itself a gift of God. But then I just realized, you know what? You don't even have to leave these verses. You don't even have to leave these verses. Paul is so clearly contrasting faith with works that it's kind of beside the point to go elsewhere in the Bible to prove that point. Paul's whole point in these verses is to say that salvation comes graciously to us through faith and not work, and that's why it's a gift. You know, salvation that comes through work It's not a gift. It's a burden. It's like giving your wife a vacuum cleaner for a Christmas present. The history of man trying to contribute to his own salvation, trying to glory in his own salvation, is as old as sin itself. In the garden, we saw our father Adam after he fell. The first thing that he did was try to fix the situation on his own by sewing fig leaf underwear a phrase that I've said more times from this pulpit than you'd probably like to hear. This is the first example of works-based salvation. And the same God who would not allow Adam to cover up his own shame is the same God who will not allow you to participate in your own salvation. Genesis 3-7 says that Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But in verse 21, we read that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God would not allow Adam and Eve to try to fix their own sin problem. Their solution was worthless. The covering of the shame had to come from God himself. Now, one of my favorite stories in the Bible elucidates this point so clearly. It's in Judges chapter six. It's from Judges six through Judges seven. Uh, I would say to turn there, but I'm gonna be pulling a lot of verses out of it. Just maybe make a note of this and go back and read it this afternoon 
in its entirety at some point, if you can. It's the story of Gideon and the Midianites. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, let me refresh you, okay? Israel had fallen into sin. Surprise, surprise. And they had been in sin and uh, under God's discipline for seven years. God had handed them over to the Midianites where they were suffering at their hands. Uh, things were pretty bad. Judges 6.4 says uh, that, that the Midianites would encamp against the Israelites and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. So the Israelites do all this hard work. They're trying to grow enough food so that they don't starve to death in the middle of the desert. And then the Midianites come and take all their food and then they take their ox and their donkey and anything that they may need to plant food again next year. It's bad. But the people of God cried out for mercy and God, being rich in mercy, he heard them and he responded to their plea and he sent them a judge whose name was Gideon. Now, everything about this story, as you read it, it should keep you holding your breath, wondering, is there any way that Gideon can lead God's people out from under the thumb of the Midianites? First, you have to see that in verse six, chapter 6, verse 6, the people of Israel are described as very low. They haven't been in the land very long. They're not established. They keep getting their crops and their animals stolen. They likely are suffering various kinds of pestilence. They're just a weak people. They're not the strongest people even in their own neighborhood, much less that portion of the world. Then when God raises up Gideon, <clears throat> this is how Gideon describes himself when he receives his call from, from the Lord. He says this, Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and if you know anything about ancient Israel, then you know that Manasseh was a very weak tribe amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. So he says, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So you come from a weak tribe, the weak clan from the weak tribe, and you're not even the strongest one of your household. It's a bad situation. All of this leads Gideon to ask God quite pathetically, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Not only that, but Gideon is the weak, not only is Gideon the weakest man in his family, but it seems that his faith is weak too. After he has a face-to-face -face with the angel of the Lord, where the angel of the Lord tells him, hey, you got this. God is raising you up for this very purpose. We have the whole fleece debacle where, where Gideon has to ask God and then like re-ask God, are you super sure that this is what you want me to do? On top of that, you have the fact that Gideon is very fearful. The Lord one day tells Gideon, go down to the Midianites because I have given them into your hand. I, the God of the universe, the one who rescued Israel out of Egypt, I've given these people into your hands. Go. But if you're afraid, you can take Pearl with you to go investigate. If you're afraid. And then we read basically in the next verse, and Gideon went down with Purah. So Gideon is weak, lacking in faith, and fearful. And who can blame him? The Midianites had teamed up with the Amalekites, and by the time they go out and see the enemies that they have to face down in battle, it says that they are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. It seems like the Midianites have 
more camels than the Israelites have warriors. And it gets worse. Israel started out with 32,000 soldiers, approximately. And God says, nope, that's way too many. And so God had Gideon send 22,000 of his men back to their towns. All right. 10,000 left. 10,000 versus what looks to be an infinite number of people. This doesn't seem possible, but I trust you, God. With our 10,000 people, we might be able to do this. And they might beat their chests and grab their war drums and go to battle. But God intervenes again. And he says, it's too many still. And so God whittles the number down to 300. I don't know if this is meant to be exact. Ancient Israelites weren't as concerned with exactitude as we are, but it's a very, 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 very ridiculously tiny number of soldiers to take into battle. And God says to him with his 300 men, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. And if you know this account, then you know that Gideon and his tiny army, by the miraculous power of God's hand, they won. But why did God do what he did the way that he did it there? Why did he wait till Israel was so low and so weak before deciding to send them into battle? Why choose a man from the least of all the clans of Israel? Why choose the weakest man in Gideon's household rather than the strongest man and the most intimidating man? Why choose a man who was so fearful and weak in faith? Why whittle the numbers of the army down to a preposterously low number? Well, the answer that the Lord gives is given out in verse 2 of chapter 7 before the action even begins. And God explains. He says it like this. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many people for me to deliver Midian into your hands lest Israel glorify themselves over me, saying, my own hand has delivered me. God knew. He knew that if he took a mighty man from a mighty warrior clan of the strongest tribe with all the people that he could possibly conjure up with a very vibrant and healthy nation, and he led them into victory, the Israelites would stand there and puff their chest out before the heavens and say, yeah, we did that. And that's what we do in our sin, friends. We want to say that we have delivered ourselves. The language here, it says that they want to glorify themselves over God. Just saying that makes me sick to my stomach that we would want to do that to the God who has so lovingly saved us from our sins and we want to take credit for it. You should know that God will have none of this. He has designed the gospel in such a way as to eliminate even the tiniest particle of our boasting so that when we stand before him at the foot of his throne and he welcomes us into the joy of his presence forever and ever, the only thing we will be able to do is fall to our knees and cast our crowns at his feet and say all honor and all glory and all praise be to you who has sovereignly saved me.
earlier in the story of Gideon, after God ordained Gideon for the task, but before Gideon led the army to victory, Gideon did something. He went out into the town and he smashed the altar of Baal. Some of the men from the town, if you don't know who Baal is, he was a a god of the ancient Near East. The Israelites were practicing syncretism. They were trying to worship foreign gods and the God of Israel. That's part of the reason why they were under God's curse. So he goes out and he smashes this altar. Some of the men from the town, they find out and they want to know what's up. So they go looking, hey, who did this? And Gideon steps out and he says this. Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. But if he is a god, let him contend for himself. And I stand here before you this morning saying the same thing. If you are a god, then you are welcome to contend for your own salvation. But if you are not, you must give all the glory to God. You must entrust your salvation to the one true God and to him alone. You must stop trying to salvage little shreds of glory for yourself. You must stop being a glory hoarder and start being a glory deflector. You must embrace your identity as a diamond in God's economy of salvation. The entire reason that you exist is to be the thing that reflects his glory. So whose glory will we contend for? Our own? As a church, what gospel will we preach? What gospel will we hold fast to? What gospel will we disciple new believers with? The gospel of God's sovereign grace or some derivation thereof? What gospel will we support with our missionary dollars? In closing, you should know that the design of the gospel is so in line with God's vision of glory guarding that we can't even take credit for the good works that we do after we get saved. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One of the common arguments against the gospel of faith alone is that God does act to save us unilaterally in the initial act of salvation, but after we're saved, then we can start contributing to that. And this takes various, various forms, right? One of these forms is that uh, God saves us, but then after that, it's up to ourselves to keep ourselves in salvation. We can infuse righteousness into ourselves through our good works, Well, if you just read this text, you can see how silly that idea is. Because even the good works that we do are as predestined as our salvation. Verse 10 is God's counter argument to this foolishness. God has so designed salvation to eliminate boasting from first to last. I cannot summarize this teaching any better than the Apostle Paul as he addresses the issue of salvation in Romans 9 chapter, excuse me, verse 16, where he says this. So then it does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. 
Now our brother Jacob Johnson will come up and lead us in a prayer of praise.